You're in the water loop. Waterloop is a nonprofit media outlet made possible in part by a grant from Springpoint Partners. Visit waterloop.org. This is episode number 150, Voices for the Voiceless. Many of the 1 million people in California who lack access to safe and reliable drinking water are Latino agricultural workers living in small communities throughout the state's Central Valley. Despite agriculture's reliance on them as a workforce, the industry uses vast quantities of water and often pollutes resources. Change is difficult because these people are on the absolute bottom of the political pyramid and lack a voice in government, as discussed in this episode with Janaki Anaga, Director of Community Advocacy at the Community Water Center. Janaki talks about the need to focus on changing representation in local water boards and how her organization is helping to identify, train, and support people as candidates for political office. The conversation will begin in one minute, but first, a word about our sponsor, Varuna. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. This episode of Waterloop is sponsored by Varuna. Water systems are facing more requirements and challenges than ever before and have to stay aware and adapt in real time. Enter Varuna. The dynamic web-based tool helps water utilities to stay resilient by identifying more than two dozen risks that are both internal and external. These include all the typical risks that systems have to deal with, and also a variety of newer factors, such as climate change and environmental justice. Not only does Varuna track risks, but it makes recommendations on actions to take, and then changes status in response to measures the utility takes. And because public engagement is so important, Varuna provides information that can be shared with others, including customers. With Varuna, better data means better decisions. Learn more at varuna.city and let them know you heard about it on Waterloop. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. Joined for this episode by Janaki Anaga. She is Director of Community Advocacy for the Community Water Center out in California. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Travis. Yeah, I'm really uh, looking forward to having this conversation. Uh, When I hear about and think about the number of people, the lives in this country that are impacted by not having clean, reliable water. Uh, It's just upsetting. And in California's Central Valley is one of the places where this problem is most acute. Um, uh, We're going to talk about some solutions for sure, but could you talk a little bit about the water situation there in the Central Valley? Um, What's going on? Who's impacted? Yeah. 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 Um, And I'm sure right now you and your listeners are starting to hear more about drought impacts in California as we're well into the summer and deep into one of the worst droughts, again, that we've ever had in history. And we continue to hear that, right, over and over. Mm -hmm. This is the worst drought in history. This is the worst drought in history. And there's this notion um, in in, California, climate sociology called shifting baseline syndrome, where, uh, you know, for, for instance, like children who 
aren't familiar with the polar bear may at some point in the future be like, oh, a world without polar bears is normal because this is the world that I grew up in, right? And so for those people who are experiencing climate impacts every year, it's like that year becomes their next baseline. And we continue to renormalize the extreme temperatures we're facing. And we continue to normalize the drop in our groundwater um, uh, our groundwater levels. And that's something that, you know, we're working against all the time. And, and, and we're glad to have uh, journalism properly cover the drought. Um, but in many cases, it's not as nuanced of a narrative as we need to have. And to answer your question around, like, uh, around what are some of the existing impacts in, for folks in California, I mean, the reality is that over a million people in the state of California don't have access to clean and affordable drinking water. And that's been a reality for decades on decades, despite the fact that we have really robust federal and state legislation to support um, enforcement around contamination and, and more recently around quantity. Um, but the ongoing historical setup of California's uh, infrastructure is what makes California this epicenter for drought impacts mm. in a way that other states don't experience. And that's because of the history of agriculture in the state of California being one of our biggest ag states and the fact that our water infrastructure has never been planned for the humans who live in the cracks and crevices of our agricultural uh, industry. Agriculture was kind of what settled California, you know, from the dawn of the colonial project to today in 2022, agriculture has been a primary driver for state planning. And when it comes to water, that's certainly the same thing that we have farm worker communities who are the communities that you'll hear about when you start hearing about drought impacts. These are the places where folks turn on their taps and no water comes out or the water that comes out is contaminated by agricultural uh, chemicals or uh, fertilizers or pesticide byproducts. Folks in San Francisco and San Diego and, and Los Angeles probably not going to feel those impacts. And you won't hear about those people on NPR. What you're going to hear about are the residents who live in the tiny communities that we work with and Community Water Center. These are places like the community of Porterville, a little tiny town in Tulare County. Um, Tulare County is one of our most agriculturally productive counties uh, by dollar acre value. However, um, in terms of the human development in that area, extremely challenged, you know, very economically depressed and educational attainments very low, linguistic isolations really high. And in those places, you know, that's where we've got this mismatch of where, where agricultural water is headed and it's not going into people's homes, you know, it's that's our, our communities are mainly drawing their domestic water from groundwater. Yeah, you know, you, you talked about the cracks that that in the crevices. Uh, and it's striking to me that you have this this mighty agricultural empire, right? It is a huge economic machine, big business, a lot of money involved. But it, it's on the backs of these people that work uh, out out in these communities, but then they're not being 
taken care of, despite the fact that they're the ones that make this whole agricultural machine work. Um, yeah, just curious in your reaction on that and how the people that are higher up in the agricultural machine are not attentive or concerned or doing anything about this. Yeah. Um, our California kind of political pyramid um, is the very top of it. We have, you know, our governor and our Congress people and within the Congress, we have typically a large number of folks that come from from the from uh, industrial agriculture who represent some of these small communities that are populated primarily by farm workers. And as we go down the rung, we have county boards of supervisors, and then we also have our public utility districts and the community service districts. And this is where the local decisions are made around water and who has access to domestic drinking water. And again, a lot of these are populated by folks who have a historic tie to agriculture. There's sort of a revolving door there, right, between those people who have um, a historic land holding or whose families were involved in um, large agriculture. And then at the bottom, the base of our pyramid, which is where we work at Community Water Center, is our farm worker community and the folks who live and breathe the realities of extractive industry. These are people who are both in, in agriculture as well as people who are in the oil industry, um, people who are in packing and processing of agricultural products. And these are all, you know, primarily at this point, immigrant communities. I mean, this is the history of California, right? I mean, mm. for a lot, of the, a lot of the folks who live in these places, not much has changed since The Grapes of Wrath being written. And The Grapes of Wrath is a great um, document of the immigrant, the immigrant history of California and this really incredible rainbow of different communities that have put their sweat into the development of this state. And for many of those residents, you know, they don't have access to the ballot box due to their immigration status or simply a serious disenfranchisement that a lot of these communities face due to their geographic location. Um, and also just a sort of lack of participation in civic life, which is a byproduct of being somebody who has has been ignored by the system at large. So that pyramid that I'm talking about is something that we at Community Water Center are trying to shift. Hopefully one day, and that's not going to be within my lifetime, but hopefully within a few of my lifetimes, to flip that thing upside down so that we start to see representation for the majority of the people who live in these communities rather than just the few who are the landed minority. Mm. Uh, I know that one of the things you all are doing is actually trying to work on that, that issue, um, address that lack of representation in government and in decision-making positions. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about that effort to, to create that change? Um, the idea of, I think, supporting candidates, finding, identifying, supporting candidates for local offices and, and trying to get them in there, people that will, <clears throat> excuse me, prioritize water solutions. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and our focus is on that um, that local level that you're talking about for a reason. That to us, that's where some of the most powerful and most immediate decisions can be made that can change the trajectory of the future of one of these little communities. And um, I'll just give a little bit of kind of general background about how water is managed, domestic water is managed, sure. and specifically groundwater, because the folks that we work with at Community Water Center are groundwater users. We don't really do a whole lot in in relation to agricultural irrigation water, which is managed by the federal government. And there's the state and federal water projects, which are these huge arteries that move through the state carrying um, thousands of acre feet of water to um, surface water purchasers who are, are, are the farmers. The folks that we work with are domestic groundwater users, maybe people who are, we're talking about communities that are maybe like 600, 700, 1200 people um, that started out maybe as a tent settlement or started out as um, just a group of migrants who showed up to an area and dug their own well by hand. And now that well is contaminated with modern day uh, fertilizers and pesticides. These are our environmental justice hotspots in California. These are our historic settlements that rely on groundwater. And sometimes, like I'm saying, these is either a collection of wells, could be maybe two or five wells that are supporting this settlement, um, or it could be a smattering of individual homes that all have their own domestic well. Mm. And it's in these places that there's an opportunity to shift the way those resources are managed at the local level. Um, because under California law, once you have a, a certain amount of connections, if you have over 25 connections to a well, that system becomes regulated. So there's a leverage there for the state under the Safe Drinking Water Act to ensure that that well, it doesn't exceed certain um, chemical levels, what are called maximum contaminant levels, which are the levels that are set such that once those are exceeded, there's a documented um, detriment to human health. So that framework allows us to ensure that the decision-making around that water is pertinent to the local community, because once you have that public water system, there has to be a governance uh, system for that water, right? So um, those are usually little utility districts, like I was mentioning before, public utility districts or the community service district is another name for the that governing body that is going to make those decisions around treatment, operation, maintenance of those treatment facilities and the rates around that, that water. So for, for us, we want to see residents from the community take a step into being the folks that are on those often five-person boards of community service districts, public utility districts, um, because the, the historic trend is that it's typically not people that are super responsive, typically not people who are trained and certainly don't have the progressive uh, viewpoint around being in that elected office where they take 
building trust with the local community seriously and advancing, you know, innovative projects or utilizing state funds to um, ensure that that water is clean and that there's transparency around decision making. Um, so we also have a sister organization um, called Community Water Center Action Fund, which is our C4 entity. And we do engage in things like candidate endorsement, supporting residents to learn about what it takes to be in that elected office, and then helping them through every step of uh, everything from enrolling to um, to participate in the election, to doing canvassing and phone banking and hmm. supporting them with all of the steps to to get to being on there. And sometimes in these little communities, it can be a margin of like five or 15 votes that wow. will send somebody into office. And it's because it's, these are such small communities. Sure, sure. Um, that's an awesome effort. How is it going? Is this, this is more of like a recent effort, a really kind of recent push to do this? And yeah, where's it, where's it stand? How's it, how's it going? Yeah. Um, so our C4 entity has been around for about two and a half years now. Okay. And prior to that, we have always worked with community uh, progressive residents who want to step into that elected office. And we have a leadership cohort called the Community Water Leaders Network, which is taking the individuals who have come out of the environmental justice movement, who've been in this work with us, who've been showing up to um, rallies at the Capitol, passing some of our most important water protection legislation, folks that come to monthly meetings, and, you know, those people who sort of show an interest to take this next step into, be, into being in elected office and, and um, carrying with them these progressive politics. So in some ways, it's sort of a boot camp for, um, for these progressive water elected leaders. And that's a phenomenal resource because what we see from that is just being in this elected office in the midst of so much structural racism, mm. a changing climate, increasingly fatal summers, and just against the um, against the current, so to speak, of extreme water contamination and the financial challenges of trying to fix that in such a small tax base. What I'm outlining here is just a really grim job, and not a lot of people do it. It's just a thankless role to take. And so a big uphill we, battle, right? I mean, it's just a long way to go to get these problems addressed. Yeah. So what we try to do is create a sense of community there and make sure people know that they're not alone. Cause mm. even the fact that it takes for a lot of these little communities, it's going to take an hour to get to your local grocery store. It's going to take an hour to get to your, you know, your doctor's appointment. Do you think that these people are going to find time to like befriend people in other communities nearby that are suffering these similar situations? They, they often don't. You know, people feel alone and they're geographically isolated and their issues tend to feel that way too. So we try to bridge as much as of that as we can um, and celebrate uh, successes as much as we can. Well, you know, you said something um, that caught my attention and, you know, you said, 
you don't know that in your lifetime, you know, that you're going to see a big title change in this and that it's going to take a lot longer. Um, you have to have some hope to be doing this work, right? Uh, so talk, talk to me about that, about that. Cause I mean, you're, you're pushing uphill too. Um, this is a big push. So you gotta, you gotta have some hope. You gotta see something here. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I carry hope with me every single day. And in some ways that's my job as being somebody in a nonprofit organization where a lot of what we do is organizing and me personally, my organizing school of thought is derived directly from my mentor, Gustavo Aguirre, who was a part of the United Farm Workers Movement. And so I've I've derived a lot of the way that I go about organizing from the UFW and Cesar Chavez's form of engaging communities in collective action. And if I can't cultivate the hope in myself, how can I have any capacity to cultivate hope in another person, right? So I have my own practice to build my own um, hope. In Spanish, we use the word ganas to like have this, it's the gumption to move forward and um, to take action. And so for me, what gives me hope, especially around issues of drinking water is to see that like who, who actually occupies the base, you know? And that, like I'm saying, it can, in some of these communities, it can be a margin of five or to 15 votes that can flip mm. the future of, of one of these communities. And though, though we are up against hundreds of years of colonial politics and big agriculture dominating the, um, the conversation around how water is managed, the demographic transition's happening quick, mm-hmm. you know, and in a short order, we can really, you know, utilizing the legal frameworks we have available to us and the organizing skills that, you know, uh, I know that we can cultivate, um, putting people into these elected positions can have dramatic effects on the decisions that, that are made to access the infrastructure needed for safe and affordable drinking water. And that's, that's the hope right there is that it takes the political will to access water and to make appropriate decisions around sustainability and conservation and ultimately reconnect um, the residents who live in these places. You know, it's not people that look, like us who caused the problem, you know, and like we can, we have the ability to carry our own traditions around ways of farming, knowledge around water management, and bring those into the decision-making spaces that we create for ourselves. And that to me is the future. And we're on our path to get there, whether or not we will outpace the reality of climate change mm. is not something that I try to bring into my frame of mind because that it's too much for me. Mm. Like, I don't think that I don't think I can do both at the same time. So I do engage in a bit of cognitive dissonance in order to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it seems that over the past several years across this country, there's been a real, um, 
a real movement from the grassroots, if you will, of people realizing that they can uh, rise up and take power and create change. Um, and some of what you're saying kind of definitely gets at that. Um, and it's certainly needed that, that you, you know, you said it only once, but I should say it again, 1 million people, right, in California that lack safe, reliable water. That's, that is not known by the public. Uh, and it really should be. It's an outrage. Um, thank you for the work you're doing. Um, and I look forward to, to keeping in touch and keeping track of the good work out there. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being on. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And thank you to this episode sponsor, Varuna. Please check them out at varuna.city and let them know you heard about it on Waterloop. To find all of our episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. Waterloop, Waterloop.